0: This morning, amongst other things, uh, we are celebrating, that's not quite the right word, commemorating Remembrance Sunday, the Sunday nearest the 11th of November. So I wonder what it is that we remember as we commemorate this day. So, what do you think we remember this day? Those who went to the First World War? Those who died? The armistice, any others? Yeah, I give that. I remember that my father was in the First World War and he really suffered physically from that for the rest of his life. Yep. So there's also all those who came home, uh, many of whom (laughs) suffered physically and many of whom suffered psychologically from the brutality of that war uh, and all of whom came home changed men. We also remember the huge cost that war uh, had on our country. 10% of our population went to fight in that war. 10,000 were killed and 30,000 were injured. That is a huge percentage of our population. And the effect on that, the number of uh, wives and children who never saw their husbands and fathers again, uh, the significant number of women who never married because of the depletion of the stocks of males in this country and the economic cost, losing that number of men out of this country. <coughs> the uh, parish of this morning is, uh, they started last year uh, an arrangement with the college there that the two speech winners would give uh, their winning speeches at the at the church this morning and the mayor's there and a representative of the Simon Bridges and in the little program they've developed there's a line in there about uh, we remember all those who went to fight to establish peace. Now when I read that line I didn't look at the name at the bottom which was a little unfortunate because I was talking to the person whose name was at the bottom so I managed to put my foot in it. (laughs) But I made a comment about how long we will perpetuate that myth that we will go and fight wars to establish peace? And I wonder if those who will be there at St John's this morning will notice the irony of that statement—that this great war that was fought, so-called, to end all wars, in fact, because of the decisions of those who won that war, the Americans, the British, and the French led directly to the Second World War, almost made the Second World War inevitable. And those decisions are still having an impact on us today in the Middle East, how they carved up the Middle East to suit their empires. It's a tragedy that we keep perpetuating myths that if we go to war, we can establish peace. We can end conflict, yes, But we can never establish peace. I think one of the most honest war memorials I saw was in Marsland Hill in New Plymouth, which was for the Boer War, which I've quoted in our pew sheet, which commemorates all those men who went off to fight patriotically for the motherland and for empire. And tragically, that's what most wars are about, fighting for motherland and the empire or some kind of arrangement around that. So how do we remember and honour those then who have gone to fight, not just in the First World War, although this date is linked to the First World War, but to every war that New Zealanders have fought in, including, I might add, the battles that were fought here, where New Zealanders fought in invading British Army fought for their livelihoods, their families, their land, their freedom. Well, I think one of the ways is to think about what causes war and to work to eradicate those causes, to work to ensure that no other young men and women have to go overseas to fight in one of these terrible occasions. So what are the causes of war? Well, I'm no sociologist. It's one of the things I don't have any qualifications in. But from looking over history and thinking about some of the recent conflicts, some of the causes I would suggest are the huge divide between the wealthy and the poor and the hopelessness that causes, and we can see that it's one of the primary causes of the Arab summer, the Arab spring, and the ongoing conflict in Syria and the ongoing disquiet in Egypt and Libya, for example. I think at play in nearly every conflict there's a self centeredness where each side loses an appreciation of the needs of the other. Which grows in absolute belief in the rightness of our own position, and it all becomes about us and our own desires. I think there's always an element of greed. And lastly, I think wars happen when we focus too much on the here and now, and we lose sight of the big picture of what's really at stake. And I think the First World War is a classic example of that where because of alliances that had been struck up between major powers and uh, because all the military plans just didn't meet the current situation which was the assassination of Grand Duke Ferdinand down in Serbia and the mobilising of the Austro-Hungarian army, the Russians mobilised to support the Serbs but all their mobilisation plans were to put the army on the German border which strangely made the Germans feel a little bit uncomfortable and no one was willing to back off and millions of lives were lost because they were stuck in the particulars and unwilling to back off from that position. So what might scripture say about all of these things? Well, a few weeks ago we heard Jesus say that we should pray unceasingly for justice for all of God's people. Pray unceasingly for justice, which seems to have a lot to say about those causes. The prophets talk about beating the the swords into plowshares, eradicating all instruments of war, longing for the day when we no longer need to be armed because of the way we live with each other, which does seem a little bit pie in the sky, even today. Actually, probably more so today, when uh, some of our largest arms-dealing countries are Britain, America, China, France. They make quite a lot of money out of selling arms to both sides of conflicts. In Luke's Gospel, we have all year heard and met Jesus who worked to remove the barriers between people. Barriers that excluded people from God's grace. Barriers that excluded people from the social, economic, and political community. He kept including all the wrong people. He also worked very hard to make those excluded people visible. That was what got under the nose of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the end. That Jesus just kept honouring the wrong people. Kept making them too visible to make them feel too uncomfortable. And then in today's readings, especially in Luke and Haggai, we have an invitation to keep hold of the bigger picture. To not get stuck in the particulars, but to see God's ongoing work of restoration and new life, and to join in that work. When I read Haggai, I was kind of reminded of uh, what I was like, and still am if I ever try to do art, when I was given a school project to do, and it involved drawing something or making something. And in my head, I would have this magnificent picture of what I was about to create, And then I would set about creating it, and the end product was always, well, compared to what I had in my head, rubbish, really. I was always profoundly disappointed with my own ability as an artist. And that was exasperated when I'd go to school and see what some of the other more talented people had built or created. And I'm sure some of you have had exactly that experience. (coughs) Well, that's exactly what's going on for these people in Haggai. They survived, thrived during their years in exile in Babylon. And then the Persians came along and defeated the Babylonians and released all the exiles. Said, you can go home now. And some of them did. Some of them had a pretty good life in Babylonia and decided to stay. But some of them went home. And in their head was a picture of what they were going to do when they were going to get home. The magnificent Jerusalem that they were going to rebuild, at the heart of which was going to be a temple as good as the one that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And then we have today's reading where the reality of what they've been able to achieve has hit them. And it's nowhere near as good as what they'd hoped for. And part of that is the amazing picture they'd built up of how magnificent Jerusalem and the temple had been. And that picture was probably ten times better than it had been in reality anyway. But the harshness and the difficulty of what they were trying to do had hit them. They got bogged down in the details. In the here and now. And then we have these two people which um, Barbara tripped over. But I always loved the guy. the a rubber ball. I'm sure that's not how you say his name. But I always think of that whenever I read that reading. Zerubbabel, I think is probably a better way of saying it, but Zerubbabel and Jehoshaphat. And their message is pretty clear. Let's stop focusing on the here and now and how difficult we're finding it, and let's instead focus on what God is doing. Let's focus on the bigger picture. That's a pretty good message to think of when we're thinking about the causes of war, which just seems so huge and the ongoing conflicts around the world we could get pretty despondent and give up. But Zerubbabel and Jehoshaphat said don't give up don't despair do what you can do and focus on what God is doing and join in that. It's a very good message for us both in terms of Remembrance Sunday and in terms of What we're doing here is a parish, really. It's not in my notes, but I'll just carry on. Uh, During the last... We're about to do a youth service this morning at 9.30, which is why there's two sets of colics and all that kind of stuff, and the pew sheet seems so fat. And if I'd thought about it, half of that stuff would have been in the service sheet for 9.30 anyway. But anyway, a friend of mine down in Palmerston North organised a fantastic children's and family service a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she was put a post on Facebook about how much she struggles with. She puts on these things, she invites all these families, and she gets two or three people turning up. And just how disheartening that is. And it is disheartening. But again, I think part of that is we need, part of what she says is people keep telling me that I need to stop inviting people to church because that's not where they're going to find life. She said, as someone who has grown up in the church, my best moments have been in the church. I've grown up nurtured and loved by people in the church. I don't understand why people don't want that kind of experience. And that is partly the struggle we have, really, that when this group of people means so much to us, we struggle to see why others don't want to join us. And it would be easy to give up and be despondent. But instead, Haggai says, well, it is difficult, but don't get stuck in the difficulty. Keep an eye on what God is doing. God's ongoing work is still happening. Keep hope. Join God. On, I think it was Wednesday, it was Wednesday, we, on Tuesday, we remembered Guy Fawkes, but in our New Zealand history, the 5th of November, as we heard at 9 30 last week, is also the anniversary of the invasion of Parihaka village in New Plymouth. And on the 6th of November, in our lectionary, in our calendar, we remember one of the leaders of that community, community Tefiti Rongumai, the other one being Tohu Kakahi. Now, some of us from this parish were at Parihaka a few weeks ago to hear the story. Standing on the ground there. Tefiti and Tohu were some of the great inspiration for somebody that we might know more about, Mahatma Gandhi. And our current Archbishop, when he went to India for six months while he was at theological college, he did an exchange with one of their theological colleges. He got there, and the people at the theology college said, Ah, well, you're from New Zealand, so you'll know all about Parihaka and Tefiti and Tohu. And he said, Ah, uh, no, I've never heard of them. So these people in India knew all about them because of the importance of them to Gandhi. So he came back to New Zealand and found out about them and is now bishop in Taranaki. So uh, it's strange how these things work. Mm-hmm. But these people, against all odds, could have got stuck in the here and now could have got stuck in the land confiscations and what that would mean for their people, could have taken up arms and fought. At that point, the Taranaki tribes, especially in South Taranaki, were still undefeated. Tokowaru had won every battle he'd engaged with, and South Taranaki was still a no-go zone for Europeans. But Tafiti and Tohu said there is no future in violence. There is no future for our people, and there is no future for this country if we keep fighting each other. We have to find another way of living together. And they worked incredibly hard at that. So instead of violently opposing the land confiscations, they just, when the surveyors came, went along and packed up the surveyors' equipment and escorted them off their land. When they Surveyors put in pegs, they just pulled them up each night. When they laid out roads, they ploughed them up and put fences across them. Uh, When settlers came and put up fences, they went along and took the fences down. And so uh, most of the men were arrested and sent to prison. They were never put on trial because the government knew that if they were ever put on trial, the courts would say they have committed no offence so it would be instantaneously uh, uh, released, and so the government just kept on passing laws that said we don't need to bring these people to trial. They were eventually all released. And then on the 5th of November, 1881, people like Rolleston, who we have mountains and all sorts of things named after, and Bryce, who was the native minister at the time, uh, the premier who was overseas, was a little bit more compassionate, uh, they decided now was the time to act, and they brought in the militia and the army. And they were all set up to massacre the people of Parehaka. If anyone had shown any violent opposition, the people of that village would have been massacred. But instead, Tefiti and Tohu sent children out to meet the, the approaching army. And the people of that village sat still in the middle. Not engaging with the British forces, the New Zealand forces at all, the militia, not responding, not showing any fear. And even when Tohu and Defiti were arrested, they sat still and continued to sit still. We could say in the end that Defiti and Tohu lost. The land was confiscated, their village in the end went down to about eight people. It's now back up to about 50. But people still meet on the 17th of every month and remember the work that they did. They inspired Mahatma Gandhi, who then led a revolution in India, a non-violent revolution that led to the end of British rule. And there are those in this country who continue to remember them and their message of peace, a message of finding a way for Maori and settlers to live beside each other in peace and mutual prosperity, not all being the same, Māori being Maori, European settlers being European New Zealanders. It's still a vision worth holding on to. We could get lost in the particulars, or we could see God's hand at work in what they were doing and join that work. So this Remembrance Sunday What is it that we remember? And what does that remembering invite us to do? Let's spend a moment thinking about that. What is it that we remember? And what does that remembering invite us to do?